Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me for the first time in a few weeks is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. It's good uh, to have you back. Yeah, good evening, Brother Nathan. Good to be back. And um, I want to thank the audience again for allowing Mr. Campbell to be in their homes. And I want to thank him as well for filling in for me in my absence. Again, this is a live, interactive radio program. So there are a number of ways that we look forward to your interaction. In fact, I'm going to go a step further and say we don't just look forward to your interaction. I'm going to say thank you in advance for your interaction. You can call and ask your question live on the air. Again, it is a safe place to ask the question. We're not here to insult. We're not here to argue. Here to hear your question and then answer it from a biblical worldview. I know speaking live on the radio is not for everyone, and if that does not appeal to you, but you still have a question, or maybe you've heard someone ask a question, you know the answer to it, or you think you know the answer to it, but you've heard a lot of people talking about it, it's something that is causing a lot of confusion, and you feel it would be beneficial for us all to hear a biblical worldview answer on that topic or on that question, you can WhatsApp or text your question to the following number, 1-268-782-1454. You can also email your question to crlthatstruth at gmail.com. That is all one word, no spaces, no apostrophes. C-R-L-T-H-A-T-S. T-R-U-T-H at gmail.com. Again, we are honored that you have taken time out of your Tuesday evening to join us here on That's Truth. We still have 90 minutes in tonight's episode, so go ahead, WhatsApp a friend, send them a text message, call them, shout down the hallway to a family member, encourage them to listen to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you have family or friends, maybe on a whole other continent, a different hemisphere, They can still listen. Go to radiolighthouse.org and click on the Listen Now link, and you can join us on That's Truth. Now that I have that material out of the way, Pastor, we have a lot of questions that have come in since the last episode. And I'm going to start with one along the lines of facts about organized religion. It's actually a video that was sent in. I have about a one-minute clip of audio from it, and the listener says, good evening, Pastor. I hope you're doing well. hope your vacation was good. Um, 
Can you please share a little light on this video? So let me play the audio from this and then we'll let you comment on it from a biblical worldview. Chapter 8, verse 32. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Your church denomination is a false religion. John Smith created the Baptist religion in 1608. Charles Parham created the Pentecostal religion in 1901. Joseph Smith created the Mormons religion in 1830. Charles T. Russell created the Jehovah Witness religion in 1872. William Miller created the Seventh-day Adventist religion in 1863. They're all man-made religions. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. We are to obey God rather than man. Ask yourself this question. How is it that in our neighborhoods, there can be four churches on one block? In 20 years, nothing in the area gets better because God's not in them. Acts chapter 7, verse 48. How be it the most high dwelleth not in temples made with hands. You have been deceived. True religion is realignment with nature and the laws that govern the cosmos, which is simplicity and compassion. That's true religion. And what are your thoughts from a biblical worldview, Pastor? Uh, well, I think the uh, presenter is trying to be a smart aleck. Uh, I think he clearly dis uh, dislikes organized religion. And it's very clear at the end of the video that he's leaning towards the New Age religion of Mother Earth, worshiping Mother Earth. So there are a lot of things I would just like to say about um, what, he, what comments he made. Uh, first of all, um, I don't think he has a clear understanding of the dynamics that are behind the creation of different denominations. Uh, and the other thing I think is that the, he is basing his teaching or his advocacy on a false premise. And the false premise is that if a man starts something, it cannot be of God. Now, that is obviously such a false premise is not even worth responding to. It is very, very illogical and quite contrary to the biblical model of how God operates. God operates on earth through men. Uh, God chooses men to do his work from the Old Testament right to the New Testament, there's a pattern where God, when he wants a job done, or he starts a, a new movement, he engages men in his uh, activity. Uh, if you go back to Noah or Jacob or Abraham or David or Solomon, or if you look into um, the Apostle Paul or Peter or Silas or Barnabas or Timothy or Titus, uh, even more, much closer, you look at the work of John Wesley or Luther or, or uh, Wycliffe or Tyndale, Moody, uh, Spurgeon, John Knox, and the many missionaries that God has sent across the world to carry the gospel to nations that were living in, in paganism. Today we've got such outstanding men as John MacArthur, uh, John Piper, Tony Evans, etc. An innumerable list of other men that God is using across the globe. So it's a false premise to assume that because a man starts something or moves into a different denomination automatically uh, it means it's not of God because clearly from history both in the Bible and outside the Bible God uses men to accomplish uh, his purpose uh, the thing uh, when it comes to denominations uh, a lot of denominations started because the official line of biblical teaching went away from the truth. For example, the Anglican Church broke away from the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church was trying to dominate Western society. Uh, so the Anglican Church moved out from under the authority of, of popery. When it comes to the Protestant Reformation, again, it was a revolt against the atrocities and the 
errors and falsehoods and practices within the Catholic Church, such as indulgences. We all know about Luther's 95 Theses when he pinned into the church at Wittenberg. Um, John Westy moved out of the Anglican Church. It was not John Westy's desire to leave the Anglican Church, but the Anglican Church had become so apostate and so false in his teaching and holding and in its practices uh, that John Westy actually mo- curated the Westian movement out of the Anglican Church. Uh, and then when you think of the Moravians, uh, court, uh, Zendendorf, how God led him to start the Moravian movement that started missionary activity all over the Caribbean, all over the world. So it's a false premise that because a, a domination or a movement was started by a man, it, uh, it is not of God. And I think that the person, the presenter, is clearly not aware of church history and the dynamics behind the what uh, caused denominations to be formed. Uh, the other thing I would say here is that the verses that he uses uh, to support his argument uh, is a clear un- uh, display of how not to use the Bible. <laughs> uh, for example, he cloaks, quotes Acts 7.49, The most high dwelleth not in temples made with hand. If you read that account in Acts chapter 7, it's Stephen who is mm-hmm. recounting the whole history of Israel. And he himself quotes this. And the reason why he quotes it, by the way, is that he wants the Jews to understand that they have a false notion that God is an ethnic God that can be confined to their temple. He's a God of the entire universe. And clearly in the Old Testament, God chose to dwell in the tabernacle, and God also dwell, chose to dwell in the temple. So uh, Stephen is not discounting the fact that uh, God could be in a place, but he's saying he cannot be confined. He's much larger than that. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And the other thing is this, you know, uh, the Bible says where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. So the idea that uh, God doesn't come into a building or doesn't dwell in a building, but he dwells in his people. And remember, the church is not the building. The church is the people. The people assemble in a building uh, to, to worship God. Uh, the, um, I would also add, there's another verse that I use, Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than man. Again, if he's familiar with the context of that passage, uh, Peter is um, telling the Jewish leaders who have put a moratorium on his preaching that you shouldn't preach the resurrection, you shouldn't preach Christ. And Peter is prepared to face incarceration, uh, face uh, persecution, even uh, death if he needs to. And his argument is that he was commanded by Christ to go into the world and preach the gospel, and there was no government that could actually stand in Peter's way, and he would declare the whole counsel of God, even if it cost him imprisonment or cost him his life. So to use that verse in the way the the, the, uh, presenter is using it, clearly he's taking it out of context context and applying it to a situation that doesn't really apply in that particular passage. Uh, The other thing that we need to bear in mind that in the Old Testament, um, God temporarily dwelt in a location uh, in terms of his presence in the tabernacle and in, 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 the, in the temple that Solomon built. But again, that had to happen because the temple that God wanted to indwell was not ready. That's the temple of man. 
and man, the problem of sin had to be dealt with before God can suitably uh, have a dwelling place, which is mankind. And God now dwells within the believer's heart who's put his faith and trust in Christ. Uh, But the sin problem had to be solved before God could could do that because when a person is in Christ and clothed in Christ and have the the right of Christ imputed to him, God can now deal with him as if he is as righteous as his son. Before that took place, sin was a great barrier. And uh, that is why God uh, assumed the location within the temple and within the tabernacle. If you just read Second uh, Corinthians six, First um, um, Corinthians chapter six, uh, Nathan, uh, where the Bible says that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the last part of that section. All right, First Corinthians chapter 6, and while I'm pulling this specific verse up, let me just encourage you to invite others to tune into That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua. Verse 19 and 20 when you get it. All right, First Corinthians 6, verse 19. What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God? And ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and not in your spirit, which are God's. The point I'm making there is that clearly that uh, in this dispensation, where the person has put their faith and trust in Christ, the believer has now become the dwelling place where the Holy Spirit indwells uh, the believer. Uh, The Old Testament arrangement was just a temporary one uh, until the whole problem of sin had been solved so that God can now dwell in man and can reestablish this relationship that was broken as a result of the fall. Uh, One other thing I wanted to point out here, Nathan, there comes a time when um, men and women of God have to separate from different religious groups. And that is why denominations were formed. That is why Baptists were formed. Uh, This is why the and the, the uh, Methodists were formed. This is why the Moravian were formed, etc. This is why the Presbyterian Church was formed. It's because the established church had become so corrupted. And there's a biblical basis for that. If you look at Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 to 18. Second Corinthians six fourteen to 18, if you want to follow along. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what Concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Verse 16. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Verse 18. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So it says, um, separate yourself, come out from among them. And that is what happened in many cases, with as far as the dynamics of what created certain denominations. I mentioned the Protestant Reformation. Anybody who's familiar with the Protestant Reformation is aware that uh, it was never Luther's intention to leave the, the Catholic Church. Never was his intention. But he could not reform the Catholic Church because it had become so corrupted and had moved away from such biblical truth. So he was 
reluctantly uh, moved out of that uh, denomination, uh, that church movement, and, and, and of course that's where the Lutherans came from, uh, etc. Uh, there's another great passage of Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, that calls sometimes for separation. Second Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which ye received of us. Yeah, uh, clearly there's a time when a believer has to separate from other professed believers. And what determines whether or not you separate has to do with the doctrinal position that person takes and also the moral practices that those people are engaged in. And it is possible for denominations and movements to become so um, apostate that one reluctantly is forced to move away from these uh, movements. And uh, that doesn't mean that because you move away and you start a church, you're actually going against God, actually you're actually following God in His command for us to separate. And then one other one, First Timothy chapter 6, verse 5. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 5. Before I read that, how many cults, though, have broken away from Christianity, have drawn people away from true Christianity, in the name of we are now the enlightened ones and the true followers of God. How do you discern whether it's legitimate or not? Well, the only way to decide, this is what we're coming to, the only way to decide whether or not a movement that was started as a result of a person moving away from another group has to do, this Bible has to be the standard. Okay. Uh, without that, you have no basis of saying one denomination is right or another denomination is, 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 is wrong. You have to use the Bible as a symbol, as the standard, the canon by which you judge movements and people, uh, and that's an important point, Nathan, because a lot of the cults that were started are a result of a peculiar interpretation that the leader got from the Bible. Take uh, the J.W. Russell, for example. He found a terrible dislike for hell. Yeah. So he had to come up with biblical verses and biblical texts that would support his argument that there was no hell. He had a problem with the Trinity as well because he couldn't comprehend this idea of one God in three persons. Again, he had to come up with, uh, interpret the Bible in such a way that it falls along with his skewed understanding of the biblical teaching. And remember that Russell's whole philosophy was that if it was not logical uh, and, re and, and, and reason could not comprehend it, uh, it therefore was not divine or biblical, and because he could not comprehend the Trinity, he's not arguing for the point that God has revealed this. So whether I can comprehend it or not, God has revealed it. His argument is that if reason cannot solve the problem, you, you must come up with some other skewed interpretation. Now, of course, nobody can fully comprehend God, to be very honest with you. Nobody can fully comprehend how God created. We're just told that God spoke the world into existence. Uh, so when a person is saying that I can't understand the, the Trinity, I, I, I don't understand uh, how God can be so powerful that he can speak the worlds into existence. But once you accept the creation by divine fiat, ex il nino out of nothing every other miracle after that becomes possible if you deny that first miracle you will always have a problem with any other miracle after that and that is why it is so important to let people understand that people who profess to be Christians who, who uh, abandon the creation doctrine in my judgment I do not regard those people as true, authentic, genuine Christians. I just think they have a false philosophy, they have a belief system, but it's not in harmony with Scripture. And that is why a Christian cannot be an evolutionist. I, I don't care whether the person is leading a great Christian movement today, I don't care how many books he's written. You cannot be a Christian and an evolutionist at the same time. It is to totally, evolution replaces Christ. 
because the Bible says God created by the person of Jesus Christ. So when you put evolution in place, you have to decide which you want to believe. Would you believe Christ or you believe evolution? And you can't have both. And that has been a problem with the church not speaking out and being so dogmatic on these matters. It has dilly-dallied in this area and therefore people are accommodated into the church who hold these false beliefs and are given a false hope. Uh, I cannot accommodate that because I'm a biblicist and I believe that what God says is true and I must defend the biblical truth. First Timothy 6, 5 says, Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Clear. There is a biblical doctrine about separation, and I don't know why people uh, we believe in the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of adoption. We believe in the doctrine of calling, but I don't know why people have such difficulty understanding that there are times when people have to move out of a, a, a denomination, move out of a group, because it's become so corrupted. The doctrine is not to stay there. The doctrine is to separate, uh, come out up from among them, the Bible teaches. Uh, so I think that's important. Uh, that helps understand a little bit of the dynamics of what's behind some denominations that have actually been formed as a result of coming out of denominations that had apostatized and gone away from the truth. And I think that's an explanation that I think this person who is a presenter is clearly not cognizant of the dynamics behind the rise of the denomination and the reasoning behind it. And as a result, um, he's trying to be smart and perhaps he has a distaste for religion. As a result, um, he's coming up with a false conclusion, a false interpretation. Yeah. He said one thing in the video that kind of stuck with me. He said, how is it, and I'm paraphrasing him, how is it that we can have on four corners in our neighborhood here, four churches, and years later, nothing has changed? What is your thought from a biblical well, worldview? Well, I, I was going to address that, but I'm okay. glad that you brought it up. Um, there, some of that claim may be legitimate. The reality is that a church is not uh, as active in its evangelistic ministry and in some cases even getting socially involved with the indigent and the poor and people in needy. So I don't dispute that. Uh, but that is not the total picture. I do not know a church or four churches within a, a block that is not prepared to help people who really want to change who really want to, to follow Christ. and uh, But the problem today is that people want the church to be a social club and a social welfare institution that cater to the physical needs of people uh, and not be concerned about the moral and the spiritual transformation of those people. Uh, the church gets involved in social work, not for the sake of social work itself, the ultimate interest of the church is moral and spiritual transformation. And I do not know of any church in, in any, any corner that is not willing to help people if they're willing to have some kind of a moral, spiritual change, even if that involves helping them physically or socially. So I think that sometimes people must understand that there are churches, four churches on a block, but there are people who don't want to go to church. They want church help, they want church involvement, but they're not interested in the God of the church. So you can't blame the church for not responding the way they want us to respond. We will not be uh, bullied into getting involved in social programs without taking into consideration the moral and spiritual needs of people. And people must understand if they want help from the church, our primary job is spiritual and moral, and we can't divorce social help from trying to deal with morality and spiritual problems. But that's not what people want. 
uh, people want a, a handout, they want help, they want a job, they want this, but they have no interest in moral change or spiritual change, and the church cannot accommodate uh, that kind of of uh, desire that people have. The focus of the church, as I mentioned, is moral, spiritual, and eternal, and it does get involved in physical and and and, uh, and um, social programs, but it has higher ends than just meeting the physical needs of people. And the church is always willing. Uh, look, this week, uh, last week, we had two people turn up our church that we don't even know. Sunday night, uh, somebody's asking that the things are so hard they want uh, a basket of goods. Uh, we will try to help in that regard, but again, we just can't do it indiscriminately because there are a lot of people out there trying to rip off the church as well. So you've mm-hmm. got to try to find out if this is a legitimate case or not, and that's what we'll try to do. But um, speaking from my knowledge of churches, especially Baptist institutions, I can't speak in regard to others. I do not know of one Baptist church that would not try to help if they can, if there's a real legitimate need, and it's within the ambits of their capacity and their financial means to help in that regard. So I don't think it's a, a true picture, but there is something to be said that the church is not as actively involved in ministry as it should be. There's no question about that. Uh, so there is some truth in what that person has said uh, in that in that matter. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say, uh, Nathan, is that uh, he said that this is true religion. He said true religion is the realignment with nature's laws that govern the cosmos, simplicity and compassion. Now, clearly, um, this person um, is a person who is teaching New Age doctrine, New Age theology, the idea that you must mesh with the laws of nature. This is not a person who believes in a transcendent personal God and that man needs uh, to repent because man is broken. This is a person who is talking about uh, adjusting yourself to the natural laws of nature, and he has no place for a transcendent personal God and man's redemption. And the the terms that he used here, uh, he says these laws are simplicity and compassion. I want to say a few things uh, about that. Uh, Number one, uh, man does not need to realign himself with the the laws of nature. Man needs to realign himself with the God who created the laws of nature. That's mm-hmm. to be very, very clear about that. So he, this guy is clearly doesn't understand the problem of man. The problem of man is man is a fallen, broken creature living in rebellion who wants autonomy and who is arrogant in uh, in wanting God to come down to his level rather than he come up to God's level. He's not prepared to repent and to change his ways, uh, and therefore he is a rebel at heart. That's man's problem. So he needs to reestablish a relationship with God, and that comes through Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ. So this idea of realigning with the laws of nature uh, is not scripture, is not biblical. And I don't know why he should be quoting for the Bible and then completely distorting yeah. what the Bible says about true religion. Isn't there a verse that says worshiping the creation rather than the creator? Yeah, that's in Romans chapter 1. Uh, we begin in verse number 18. It speaks about that very, very clearly, that this is how uh, paganism actually mm-hmm. started, that man knew God. And there's a, a certain body of truth that man knew about God. But rather than worship God, man moved away from God and tried to create a, a, a God in his own image. 
a God that he can worship like himself. That is where uh, all idolatry started. But man did not start as a polytheist. He started as a monotheist, as a one God. But then uh, as a result of the fall and going into paganism, a man went into error. Um, the other thing I would say, uh, Nathan, about, about this is that he said that pure religion and undefiled, uh, that uh, pure religion is uh, realignment with the nature's laws that govern the cosmos. The truth of the matter is, uh, the Bible does tell us what uh, true religion is, and you find that in the book of James. Um, I took the reference, let me see if I can find it, the book of James. If you turn to the book of James with me, um, it tells you exactly what true religion is. Yeah, I've got a verse in my mind. I can almost quote it, but I know if I start to say it, I won't get it quite right. Um, uh, yes, it's actually James chapter 1, verse 27. James chapter 1 and, and verse, verse 27. 27 says, right, pure religion or true religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Well, I mean, it's very, very clear that uh, James gives you an idea. Notice that true religion is three-dimensional. He says, number one, uh, it is undefiled before God. So that has to do with your vertical relationship. And the whole idea of undefiled, the idea is holiness. The idea is, is righteousness. So the whole idea is have a right standing before God. We say, we, and the, to defile uh, is to contaminate. So uh, pure religion has to do with your vertical relationship with God. And then he says, secondly, and to, and, uh, and, and to visit the fatherless and the widows in the affliction. That has to do with the horizontal level now. That you, it, after getting to know God and relate, rightly relate to God, you have to be concerned about your fellow man. And in particular, uh, notice that James itemizes the widows and the fatherless. This has to do with the people who are uh, deprived of necessities, uh, caring for the poor. This has always been the mission of the church, to be very honest with you, trying to meet the needs of the poor and the, the fatherless. And then Notice the other dimension, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That's the moral dimension now, that it's about right living. It's about uh, a changed lifestyle. That's what true religion is. It's not about aligning themselves with some kind of nature's laws uh, as this guy is purporting. This guy clearly is an unbeliever. Uh, this guy clearly knows nothing about the Bible. He's just parroted off verses to support a proposition and a premise that is false. Uh, it's the misuse of Scripture, clearly the misuse of Scripture. So you could use this one verse to undermine his conclusion. Yeah, I mean, he's saying that's pure. Let's tell you what the Bible says is pure religion. Yeah. Nothing what he's saying is pure religion. This is what pure religion is all about. It is the vertical relationship between God, the horizontal between your fellow man, and the moral aspect of your life in relation to the world. Uh, don't let the world dominate your life and, uh, as the Bible said, be transformed renewing your mind. So it has to do not become worldly and be wrapped up in this whole world system of values. That is what true religion is about and nothing to say the Bible talks about the aligning with nature's laws, etc., etc. We have a question that has... Were you finished with that? Go ahead. I'll I'll take the question. Uh, We have a question that's just come in from St. Kitts Nevis. Pastor, should we keep the Sabbath? I think I dealt with that on another program. I'm going to ask Brother Nathan to... Pass it on to you. Uh, look, if you are persuaded that the Sabbath is a day that you should worship on, 
I have no qualms, no quibbles about you observing that. That's a matter of conscience. I will suggest you that you read the book of Colossians and the book of Romans about this matter because the, those two books deal with this whole matter of the Sabbath. Um, let no man judge you in relation to these matters, nor Sabbaths, uh, etc. So you don't have to, um, you don't have to feel as though you are confined to observe. The, the Sabbath. But if you are f- convinced about the matter, nobody can fault you in that. It's a matter of personal decision uh, as far as I'm concerned. It's a matter of conscience. But the church from the first century, from the New Testament times, uh, it is very, very clear that it saw the first day of the week, the Lord's resurrection, there's a very special day. Um, not only was Christ raised from the dead on the, on, the, on the first day of the week, the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, which is the first day of the week. Uh, when Paul gave instructions for the churches to collect an offering in the book of Corinthians, he corrected them on the first of the week. Uh, when Paul was preaching, uh, when Eutychus fell down and um, was killed, he was preaching on the first of the week. Uh, when John was on the Lord's, uh, have his vision, it was on the Lord's day. And remember, this is not the Sabbath, because twice that word Lord is used in relation to our Lord and the Lord's Supper. And the, and the Lord's day. It's not the day of the Lord that John was uh, John is talking about. That's a distinct um, expression that is not uh, carried in the same language, the Greek language, in the same way. So they're two distinct terms. So we, and then f- you can go right from the first century. I, I think the program gave uh, quotes mm-hmm. from the church fathers in the first century right through that they all met on the first of the week to celebrate the Lord's Day and they all said that the Sabbath had passed away because according to Hebrews, the Sabbath was a sign of rest and uh, Christ came and bought the believers rest and therefore the Sabbath is no longer mandatory <coughs> as far as the believers concerned. One other point very quickly. <coughs> There are Ten Commandments given in the Scriptures. What is fascinating, that nine of those are repeated in the New Testament. The one of the Sabbath is not. And that in itself should be very, very significant. But we observe the Sabbath in spirit, because one of the seven belong to the Lord. And that's where uh, Sunday we observe the one in seven. But the other thing is this. We don't worship God in one day. We worship God every day. So every day is sacred to the Lord. And that should be the attitude of the believer. But for me, I have no compunction of conscience in regard to the Sabbath. I think it served its purpose. I think that God had a, a day to celebrate the old dispensation, the old covenant. There's a new day. Uh, which is the first day of the week that now celebrates the new covenant and the new creation. And I think that parallel is very clear when you look at both of them in the New Testament. Thank you for sending in your question. And let me just draw your attention. If you want to hear a whole episode of That's Truth focused specifically on this topic, let me encourage you to go to our website, radiolighthouse.org. And then scroll down to the second large picture that you see. It's a photo of a broadcast microphone. You can't miss it. Right in the center of the screen there, you're going to see a white, a circle that when you hover over it turns white, and it says podcast. Click on that. That will take you to a page that lists three podcasts that we have here at the Lighthouse. The first one in the list is That's Truth. Click on the link that says Visit the Podcast. That will take you to an archive of all of the episodes. And if you scroll down to the bottom of the list, 
the fourth episode that we did was called The Sabbath, Why We Worship and When We Worship. And that uh, episode is focused solely on the Sabbath. The last thing I want to say, Nathan, is that it is very, very significant that this presenter is saying that the, the two laws of nature that we should align ourselves with are what? Simplicity and compassion. What struck me is that those same two qualities he's talking about, the Bible says, are found in Christ. Look at Second um, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Second Corinthians eleven three says, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I mean, he's saying that we need to wow. align ourselves to get simplicity. But that's what the Bible is teaching. And the thing about Christ is this. The simplicity of Christ is, is simply the whole matter of the gospel. The gospel is a very simple gospel. The gospel is about man is fallen, he's a rebel, he's broken, he needs to be restored to relation with God, and that God took the initiative to send his son into this world uh, to die in man's place, to pay the price so that man could be restored to that. That's the, the simple gospel. Is it? And what God requires of a man is two things. He repents of his sins, and he puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is about. If you looked at Corinthians, you'll find that the Corinthians were glorying in, in Greek knowledge and Greek wisdom, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, and so on and so forth. He said, I did not come among you with excellency of speech or with human wisdom, see? So the simplicity that he's talking about, nature doesn't show simplicity. Nature shows complexity. <laughs> uh, but, but in Christ, the simple truth of the gospel and the simple provision of the cross is what we uh, must understand. Is sim- and then the other thing, of, uh, by the way, also look at uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 8. That this same simplicity uh, in Christ, the Apostle Paul also uh, talks about or he, he adapting that in his own ministry. Romans 12, 8 says, Or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, and he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Again, the same principle that's operative in God's redemptive salvation, the simplicity in Christ. The Lord is now saying to the believers, practice that same simplicity in your ministry. Don't complicate things. Make things simple. You don't have to be a, a Einstein to serve the Lord and complicate matters. So that same principle, simplicity in Christ, is now actually practiced in the life of believers, that we must be simple people in presenting a simple gospel and ministering a simple way, not complicated matters. Look at another verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse, 20, verse 12. 2 Corinthians 1, 12 reads as follows, For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, with, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. Again, Paul transferred that same element of simplicity to his own ministry. Now, when he's ministering to people, and that word simplicity, by the way, uh, is a word that means sincerity. It comes from a word, hupotastis, and it is the opposite of being duplicitous. So rather be a double tongue or a double life, it's a simple way of living that is marked by sincerity, right? So that quality that he's talking about that we look for to align ourselves in, in nature actually uh, is found in Christ. And I thought it was significant that he would target those two particular um, words 
which are found in Christ and target them to Mother Nature. The other one is compassion. I'd like you to look at Mark chapter 15, verse 32. Mark 15, 32. 32 says, Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see... That is Mark, that's sorry, Matthew 15, 32. Sorry. Uh, Matthew 15, 15 32, 32, not 32 Mark. says... Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. Look at Mark 8, 2. Mark 8, 2. I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And look at Matthew twenty thirty four. Matthew twenty thirty four says, So Jesus had compassion on them, and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Now here's the one word that is so much, I could give you verse after verse in the New Testament that emphasizes that Christ is the compassionate one. Yet this person who apparently uh, claimed to be able to interpret the Bible is taking those two basic principles, simplicity in Christ and compassion of Christ, and applying it to Mother Nature. And this is where I think there's a complete distortion on the abuse of Scripture and the misuse of Scripture. The other thing I would say this, Nathan, um, nature doesn't show compassion. The survival of the fittest is the basic rule of nature. See? So here is a, 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 you know, uh, a person who is trying to be a smart aleck, trying to uh, cause people to dislike uh, religion and abusing and misusing scripture in a way that when you look at it very carefully, he must have ulterior motives. This person cannot be a believer. He cannot be a Christian. This is a New Ager trying to uh, foster the New Age movement and New Age religion. You're listening to That's Truth, and I'm glad that you are. Thank you to those of you who are sending in questions. We will get to them as soon as we're able to. We have quite a list of questions that have come in since Pastor Murphy was last in the studio. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.13. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 11.60 a.m., 92.3 f.m., and online at radiolighthouse.org. For this program, you can also join us on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed. And right there on your device while you listen to the program, you can watch behind the scenes and you can comment your questions or concerns and they'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy live on the air. You can call if you have a question. Call one 462 7420 That's the number that will put you live on the air once you talk to the call screener. And you can ask Pastor your question or your concern. Let me give you that number again. I know I'm talking kind of fast. To be put live on the air, one 462 7420 If you want to WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one 
we have a, another video that has been sent in. Again, if you have sent in a question and we haven't gotten to it yet, uh, please bear with us. We have a number of things we're getting through, and we will get to your question. If not in tonight's episode, if we don't have time, we will get to it in next week's episode. Pastor, we have a video that uh, has come in, and it is about the topic of the Bible petition, banning the Bible. Uh, Just a little bit of background on it. Mark Dice is an American YouTuber and founder of a San Diego Christian activist group called The Resistance, and he's described as being known for its hardline stance on morality. This video is showing how people would react if they're willingly and ready to sign a petition to ban the Bible. And I've got about a 50-second clip of audio from this video. We're going to go to that and then get your thoughts from a biblical worldview. This is crazy. A lot of people are ready to sign the petition to ban the Bible. Watch this. Will you help us to ban the Bible? To ban the Bible? We're just trying to get rid of this hate speech just to help the New World Order. But Amazon is still selling it to a lot of people, and we're just trying to get them to stop that. Why would I want to ban the Bible? Well, you know, it makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable. Uh, It's hurting a lot of people's feelings. Just print here and, yeah, print birthday and a signature. You know, the Bible hurts a lot of people's feelings, and it makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable. And if we can get rid of it, you know, that'll really help with the New World Order. A lot of people want to burn the existing ones, but maybe we can do that later. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And surprisingly, he had a number of people that were willing yeah. to be talked into signing that. The question from the listener who sent this video in is, Pastor, what is going on? Is it right what they are doing about the Bible and the Word of God? Well, it's clearly not right, but you must understand there is a a conspiracy, uh, a great battle going on for the minds of men and women, and the media align itself with the bankrupt political leftist progressive group who have determined that uh, they must uh, uproot the Uh, Judeo-Christian foundation of Western civilization and bring in a new world order that is completely uh, humanistic and uh, is is, is completely washed of anything to do with the Bible, anything to do with God. It's a great battle that's going on. Um, uh, Part of that battle was lost recently in the Supreme Court decision in America. Uh, I don't think people understand how many years Christians have been praying and fighting and and moving to try to get uh, the reversal of the uh, the Roe v. Wade. Yeah, in America. I mean, this was not done overnight. This was prayers. This was uh, people petitioning. This was people working behind the scenes. A tireless effort to save human life. Remember that between from 1973 until now, America has killed 65 million children. They murdered, not not killed, murdered 65 million people, uh, children, innocent children. Uh, But that battle is an ongoing battle. And and until they are able to completely do away with Christianity and the Bible, they will not be satisfied. Remember that two great forces stand 
against the leftist progressive ideology, and that is the Word of God and the Church. You've got to get rid of the Word of God and get rid of the Church uh, if you are going to actually get your agenda passed. Uh, religion uh, cannot be uh, in any way discounted when it comes to changing the political atmosphere. That's why in the Antichrist, in the book of Revelation, you've got the second uh, beast, which is called the, the prophet, who aligns himself with the political leader, the Antichrist, to deceive the world. Politicians will always use religion to foster their ideology. And that's exactly what happens uh, in America and other parts of the world where they're trying to either destroy Christianity or nullify Christianity or make Christianity cooperate in their uh, social political agenda. So to ban the Bible, uh, as was demonstrated here, uh, the reason that they're given is so (laughs) ridiculous, it hurts people's feelings. It makes people uncomfortable. Well, that's what the Word of God is designed to do, not to, to butter you up and make you feel good about yourself. God would always try to show you that you are a sinner because the problem that man has is sin. That's, that's man's problem. Man needs to repent. And to repent means you must be, come to the point where you feel uncomfortable with your sin. So the Bible must disturb your equilibrium, bring you to the point of repentance. And if the gospel is preached as it should be, and if we would preach the gospel in all of its fullness, we would not have this soft, sap, lackadaisical attitude that people have towards the gospel. Uh, and uh, we would have people coming under a measure of conviction. But I think that we've softened the gospel to such an extent that people can hear our pablum and not in any way be moved. But that is what we need, strong preaching that declares the whole counsel of God. And here's another reason. They said that uh, not only people, it will help bring in a new world order. <laughs> Again, I, am, I can't believe that people will sign a document haven't heard that, that expression, the new world order. Uh, there is a new world order coming. Uh, the Antichrist, the Bible talks about. Uh, and the other thing, it is hate speech. Later on in the video, we didn't play that part. They said it's hate speech because it's, uh, it's homophobia, uh, etc. And it's anti-Semitic. Uh, it, uh, but then they said in the same video, but we will leave the Quran. And people are signing right, left, and center. It just shows you, quite frankly, what a low state of spirituality we are in the Western world and how we have moved away from the Judeo-Christian consensus that once dominated the Western world. We have now moved away from, from that. And it seems to me, from some of the changes I'm seeing in America, that the pendulum seems to be beginning to swing back. Uh, more towards Christian way of thinking. Uh, I hope that continues because as America goes, the whole world will go. Uh, but I uh, commend the church, the churches and the Christians in America who were able uh, to, uh, through tremendous sacrifice and effort, time and energy and uh, uh, was made to try to reverse uh, this abortion, this murderous uh, killing of innocent children. And I'm glad that they were able to do it. And I just uh, learned that in the Caribbean now that we are trying to, <laughs> we know trying to institute it. <laughs> uh, the church needs to take a stand on this matter. Uh, life begins at conception, and uh, we need to defend it. But to do away with uh, the Bible is the only way that you can bring in a secular humanistic uh, doctrine that uh, excludes God and brings in the progressive agenda. 
Uh, and it's sad that people are just signing without understanding the repercussions and the consequences of what they're doing. Of course, this video is not really intended to ban the Bible. It's just to show how low uh, people's understanding of the Bible and that people uh, no longer value Scripture and can easily be duped into signing something without understanding and looking at the full repercussions of it. Thank you to the individual who sent that in. Pastor, a comment from St. Martin in relation to your comment or your answer about whether we should keep the Sabbath. The listener says, The Bible said, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. It's the fourth commandment of Exodus, chapter 20. The Sabbath was from creation. Sunday is the first day of the week. Saturday is the seventh day of the week. It is commanded from God, and we have to keep it. No government opens their office on Saturday because they know it's the Sabbath. Well, clearly, uh, that is not the reason that government doesn't open the, on the Sabbath. I can tell you that. I don't say that no government does either, uh, you, you, unless you live in all parts of the world. The reality is, when you read Second Corinthians chapter 3, and I would suggest that you read that very clearly, is that the, there's a new covenant and an old covenant. And the old covenant has been set aside, or as the Bible says in, in Corinthians chapter 3, abolished, set aside. Okay, And it talks about the letter of the law written in stone. It's referring to the, There's only one part of the Bible written in stone, the Ten Commandments. So if you read Corinthians chapter, Second Corinthians chapter 3, clearly you'll see that it's talking about the literal Ten Commandments. What has happened is that you have an old covenant, and God instituted it under the old covenant, the Ten Commandments. That... Old covenant reigned until Christ came and God established a new covenant in his blood. The new covenant supersedes the old covenant. But what God has done is God has taken certain principles from the old covenant and transferred it into the new covenant. That's why you find that nine of the ten commandments are included in the new covenant. There's no need now for the Sabbath covenant because the Sabbath was a type of rest. Mm. Read Hebrews chapter 4. Christ has brought that rest. It was a what you might call the shadow of things to come, a type of things to come. Do we go back and do the sacrifices? They have passed away because they fulfilled their purpose. They have been fulfilled. They were all pointed to Jesus Christ who would die on the cross. So we no longer have to do the sacrifices. Like the, the Church of Yahweh uh, have reinstituted all the Jewish festivals to do the tabernacle and all of that. All of that is shadows of things to come, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So there's no need to go back to this. But again, I would like to say to you, as kind as I would, would say, if you feel convinced in your conscience that that's the proper thing to do, if you violate your conscience and uh, change that, you are actually sinning because God is greater than your conscience according to the book of 1 John. Uh, let me point out something else. If the Sabbath is the only day of worship, why does the Seventh-day Adventist worship on the Sabbath and the Sunday as well? I'm just asking a question to the, to the person who asked that. And part of the reason they've done that, when I was in St. Lucia, I passed in St. Lucia for 10 years, uh, that's what they did. And I think they still do it They do it here as well. They didn't want the Seventh-day Adventist people going to the church on Sunday. So they started services on Sunday as well. So if, and by the way, the Adventist church believed that Sabbath worshipers worship the mark of the beast. So why then are you saying it must be exclusively Sabbath, but yet you're also worshiping the Sabbath on Sunday? Are you concerned that you might be wrong? And you want to have your fit in both camps? 
It's a matter of personal belief. And then Colossians is very clear on this matter. Let no man judge you in the matter of Sabbath or any holy day. Let you be fully persuaded in your mind. It's a matter of conscience. That's the biblical doctrine. That's the biblical teaching. And uh, that's my position. And I believe it's supported by Scripture. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Thank you to those who have sent in questions. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to your interaction. You can call and ask your question live on the air at 1-268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Or you can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and comment your question in the comment section on your device. We have two other questions that have just come in um, recently. We have one from St. Martin. Good evening, Pastor. What are the crucibles of sin? I saw that too late to really investigate it. I've never heard the expression, but a crucible is something you put in, um, that you put heat under. So I would like to, to ch- I've never heard that expression before, and I don't want to give a rush answer that I have to uh, take back next time. So let me deal with that particular one next That's time, sweet. please. Okay. Thank you to the individual who sent that in. We appreciate it, and we look forward to having it answered next week. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. This listener wants to know what your interpretation is of this passage. And I will read it. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Seventy weeks are determined upon the people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Daniel 9.25, if you're wanting to follow along. Know therefore and understand that from the going down of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And verse 27 of Daniel chapter 9. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Yeah. I think I dealt with this passage in another program, Daniel 70, 70 weeks, so I think that um, the nation should probably give you the information on that. But it, it, it's just an essence of this particular prophecy. Um, it is explaining to you the entire panoramic survey of God's plan for Israel and the Messiah and the final phase uh, which is called the seven-year tribulation period. Uh, there's 70 weeks. And the words weeks is an unfortunate translation because in the, in the Hebrew language, it's 77s. 
And that's where people are misled. The word for week is not the word for seven, uh, but it was translated that way. But it's S77s. And it has to do with 77s. And if you take 70 and multiply it by seven, it's 490 years it's talking about. Uh, that's talking, and it gives you a starting point. Uh, it tells you that uh, after 69 of those sevens, uh, the Messiah is going to be cut off. And it also tells you there's another section there uh, from the time the city of Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. So it, it gives you some markers that you can know exactly uh, what is... But Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem was built in... Uh, beginning of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem was 445 B.C. Okay, if you do the calculation for 445 B.C. and you take 69 uh, years, you'll find the Messiah is cut off. It gives you the exact year the Messiah will be cut off. In, uh, it's thir- 33 A.D., somewhere around like Oct- um, uh, 33 A.D. Uh, I... I think that they give you the program, I did the calculations to give you an idea of how that works out. But it's, it's giving you a marker that from the time Jerusalem, St. Jerusalem was rebuilt in 445 until the Messiah would be cut off, uh, it gives you the exact year in which Jesus Christ was died. There's a book written by um, the coming prince, by the once the head of the Scotland Yard in, in, in England, um, I'm trying to remember his name right off the bat. So Robert Anderson. Uh, that book is available. You can get it online. But he does the specifics in terms of the timeline and the dates, etc., to show you that when Christ came to uh, on the Palm Sunday, uh, you could have known, the Jews could have known exactly when the Messiah would be killed. They would know the exact year the Messiah would be killed. Uh, that was Bible prophecy. That's, by the way, when the wise men came uh, and and told them about the, the seeing the star. Uh, if you knew the year the Messiah would be killed, you could have worked yourself back and have an idea when the Messiah would come. See, and that's why there was an expectancy of the Messiah coming during that period of time. From using Daniel, they knew that when he would die, and therefore they had an idea of the approximate time he would come. Uh, but that has to do with the cutting off the Messiah, the time when Messiah would come. But it also has to do with the 70th week, which is the final week that will come, which we call the tribulation period. And it's when the coming prince, and we're told who that coming prince was, he will be of the ones who destroy the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. So we know that the coming prince who will sign a peace pact with Israel for seven years is going to be from the Roman stock. It's what you call the revived Roman Empire. The Antichrist that's going to come is going to come out of Europe, uh, out of the old Roman Empire. That's where we get those ideas from. But again, it's a very complicated uh, passage, and it needs to be dealt with uh, on a more uh, careful, line-by-line basis and doing the calculations so that you can grasp what it is teaching. But to summarize... It's about the final prophetic program of God. It has to do with the cutting off the Messiah, the exact year the Messiah will be cut off. The dates are specified. And it also has to do that after there'll be a hiatus between 69 and 70, a break between there, and this is where we are now, the church age. But then there's going to be a peace pact signed with Israel for seven years that the Bible talks about the Great Tribulation period. And the one that signs that will be the false Messiah who will Israel will find that peace pact. And the whole book of Revelation is an unfolding of those that seven-year period. Revelation talks about 
three and a half years, 1260 days. It talks about times and, 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 and time and half a time. Uh, the tribulation is divided into two sections, three and a half years and three and a half years. And the Bible tells us in the midst of those seven years, the Antichrist is going to break the covenant with Israel. All of that is in this great passage. It has is futuristic. It has to do with God's plan for Israel and how this is going to work out in terms of the tribulation in the final phase of world history that is all documented in the book of Revelation from chapter 4 right on to the end of Revelations. It explains this seven-year tribulation period. And if you are interested, thank you to the individual who sent in that question, by the way. If you are interested in more detail about end times, Pastor Murphy did a 18-week series on this topic of Bible prophecy and end times. If you were to go to our website, radiolighthouse.org, again, scroll down to the second large picture you see, which is a microphone. Right in the center of the microphone, you see a photo of a circle that says podcast. Click on that, then click on the link for That's Truth podcast. That'll take you to an archive of all 200 plus episodes. And look for episode number 89 through to episode 106. That's the 18-part series. And specifically, he discusses the book of Daniel, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 9 in episodes 90, 91, and 92. And I'm sure that the book of Daniel is mentioned through a number of those other episodes also. Again, we are honored that you are listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, to That's Truth, here on Tuesday evening. Maybe it is Saturday afternoon and you're listening to the rebroadcast and you say, man, I wish I didn't have to work on Tuesday evening because I'd send in my question on Tuesday evening. Listen, send in your question on Saturday. Send it in on Sunday. Send it in on Wednesday. And the next episode, we will. We are live in the studio. We will, Lord willing, answer your question from that uh, here on That's Truth. You can send your question via WhatsApp or text message to 268-782-1454. A WhatsApp question that has just come in. Good evening, Pastor Murphy. Some people don't believe in paying tithes. Some pastors even preach that paying tithes is not biblical. Can you please enlighten persons of how important it is in paying tithes and the passages in the Word that say we should pay tithes? Well, I can't give you all the passages in the Word that these for that matter. I would just simply say to you that um, tithe is something that predated the law. Uh, so as a principle, uh, Abraham tithed and gave tithes uh, um, gave tithes to um, in Levi. I think that's what the Bible says. So it's a principle that predates the law itself. This idea of giving a tithe. Um, when our Lord came on the scene, He did not renounce the idea of giving a tithe. He said that, you know, you tithe this, but uh, he talked about doing kindness and, and, and righteousness and, 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 and mercy, etc., etc. There's no specific uh, New Testament passage that says you must pay a tithe. It's not there. You can't find it. Uh, you find that in the book of Corinthians, Paul talks about giving generously and giving hilariously. But the reality is that under grace, if under law we gave a modicum of, of a tithe, it should be under grace that we're willing to give more than a tithe. Uh, 
So I think I don't think I think the tithe should be the base that you start with, and then uh, move from there. But to look for a command in the Bible other than the book of Malachi, which talked about uh, bringing the tithes and robbing God of His tithes, etc., etc., there is that basic command in the book of, of Malachi. But when it comes to the New Testament. Basically, you can't find any clear commandment in regards to the, the matter of tithes. Uh, it's a principle that predated the law, a principle that runs through the law, a principle that in the last book of, uh, last book of the Bible emphasizes the need to, to, to give tithes to the Lord. Our Lord, when he came on the scene, did not renounce it, did not condemn it. Uh, he actually endorsed the idea of giving in tithes. But when we come to the Pauline writings now, we find that he, ex- uh, he emphasizes the matter of giving generously and liberally and joyfully without any reference at all to the fact that uh, a tithe is necessary. But let's be very honest. If you're going to do missionary work uh, and your church is going to uh, support missionaries, if you're going to support, you have a pastor and you feel you need a pastor, there is no way I can see that uh, these things can be done without people giving to the Lord's work. Uh, in the Old Testament, for example, I don't know if you noticed that when people uh, tithe, the tithe went to the priests. Not only that, when they sacrificed animals, certain party animals went to the priests because it was the maintenance of the, the, the person that the Lord had called into the ministry. Pastors need to be supported like any other person, unless you want to have a church without a pastor. That's possible as well. But... Um, uh, giving is uh, giving to the Lord uh, is important, and any church where people are not giving their tithes and offering, I don't think that church can long uh, sustain any kind of ministry. You can't expand. You can't. You can't. Uh, you can't do projects. Whatever it is, I just think for the upkeep of God's house, support of God's ministry, it's important that people uh, tithe to the Lord and give to, to God's people. But looking for a clear command in the New Testament, I don't see it there. Uh, and I do feel that grace should make us more generous than under law uh, because there's far more blessings we enjoy than under law. That would be my principal uh, view on this, this particular matter. WhatsApp question from St. Kitts Nevis. Pastor, should we eat pork? Whether you eat it or not, I eat it. So I, I, I'm, I'm not... I don't want to say I'm biased or prejudiced uh, in this this matter, but again, it goes back to the old Old Testament. We are no longer under the Old Testament law and these regulations. Uh, and the, t- t- uh, Paul says in Timothy that you know God gave us all things to enjoy, and that uh, we should enjoy these things and, and pray over them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, maybe I should do a program on on that and trace it. Uh, Nathan took a note there because I'm just speaking. On, on the general principles, uh, but we are no longer; those things are no longer binding upon us under uh, under on under on, on grace. And, and remember that um, a lot of these strictures that we find in the Old Testament in relation to the nation of Israel were designed to teach Israel certain spiritual lessons about separating and about what is clean and what was unclean, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so uh, these laws uh, do not apply to us today. Um, some people don't eat crayfish, they don't eat lobster, they don't eat this, they don't eat the next. Uh, the Lord has given to us all things uh, to enjoy freely. Paul talks about that in, in Timothy. I can't remember the exact verse. That's why I'm going to deal a program with that at some point in time. But yes, I have no problem with um, eating pork. However, if your conscience bother you, again, 
it's a matter of conscience. When the Bible does not explicitly ex- talk about these things uh, in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, and declare these things to be right or wrong, we have to allow Christian conscience to govern these matters. So if your conscience bother you on these matters, uh, by all means, desist from it. But for me, my conscience is cleared. I believe that all things that God made are intended are good for us to to, to, to use rightfully. And uh, he's given these things for us to enjoy. We enjoy these things. But under the Old Testament economy, he used these things to teach. For example, in the Old Testament, you know, you couldn't plant a garden with two different types of seeds. You couldn't wear a shirt with two different colors. So (laughs) does that apply to us today? But the principle that was being taught there was the need to separate. And God used every means to teach this principle of separation from evil. He used food laws. He used garment industry laws. Um, he used laws relating to sickness like the leper. But it was all designed to teach Israel the need of holiness and separation from evil. Um, and that served its purpose. There's no need for us to go under the bondage of those laws. And by the way, in the Acts uh, when this problem became a reality in the book of Acts, that they should eat certain things, the restriction is placed that you should not, Gentiles should not engage in fornication, and the only restriction about food is they should not eat things that are strangled and things that with the blood. So I'm against blood pudding. I'm against killing an animal and leaving the blood in it and putting it on a roast. Right, uh, I'm against that. I think the Bible principles are against that. But those are the only restrictions. You must not eat blood and things that purposely, uh, con- you must drain the blood out of these things, etc. But that's a biblical principle. But um, don't put your legalistic sentiments on other people. Uh, allow for Christian judgment and allow for Christian liberty in these matters, as Paul says. However, I if you don't eat pork, I'm not going to invite you to your home and deliberately put pork on your table or on your plate. Uh, that is uh, completely wrong, unchristian, unethical. Uh, and uh, but I would I would respect that matter about you. But please don't expect to impose your view in these matters when we are given biblical liberty in scriptures on these issues. Thank you to the individual who sent in your question and your sincerity and your willingness to ask it here on the Radio Lighthouse. If you have a question, I can almost guarantee there's a 99.9% chance that there's at least one other person out there that has a similar question or is facing it or will face it. A comment, follow-up comment from St. Martin. Pastor, we are going to obey God rather than men. Because the Bible said so, God never worshipped on the first day of the week. And thank you for uh, your questions that have come in. We have a question that has come in. And uh, going back to a topic that I'm not sure it's been discussed recently here on That's Truth, maybe early on uh, to some degree. But, Pastor, are women supposed to pray in the general assembly of the church? Well, look, if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 4 and 5, could you just read that for me, please? Yeah, that says, And David and all Israel... 1 Corinthians. Sorry, I was in Chronicles. Wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wrong First Corinthians Testament. 11, verse 4 and 5. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 4 and 5. Definitely not about David. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head, but every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head 
for that is even all one as if she were shaven. Yeah, the, the point there is that uh, clearly women had the right of praying in the assembly. Paul is dealing with the assembly of the church and the wearing of stuff like that. So clearly women had the right uh, in the assembly to prayer. It's just that there were certain strictures placed uh, on the Bible and provided that she followed the biblical protocol of having her head covered, uh, there was no uh, problem in her praying in the church. However, the Bible is silent about she being the one that is called to lead in prayer. And I think that's what the person is talking about. Uh, nowhere is there a restriction of a woman being able to lead in prayer or a woman is given the authority to pray and lead in prayer in the church. Uh, such matters, I think, fall under custom and traditions of churches and denominations. And uh, I think that people ought to respect those customs and traditions uh, rather than create any kind of offense in these matters. Um, so we all have rights and uh, we have privileges as believers, uh, but we must also be servants. So I, I, I see nothing unbiblical about a woman being uh, allowed to pray uh, in church. However, in our Baptist circle, generally speaking, we would prefer to call a man to, to introduce a morning service in prayer. It doesn't mean that it's, it's sinful to not to ask her, but it's just part of our custom, and there's no biblical restriction on that. We don't want to go beyond what the Bible reveals, and we don't want to impose laws that the Bible don't impose. This is where Christian liberty comes in, and sometimes the traditions and uh, practices of your denomination will influence what you do. But uh, there's no biblical uh, restriction against a woman uh, praying, provided she follows the protocol that she be covered. Now, again, <clears throat> I believe that's a little covering, by the way. I don't believe it's a here. Okay, that's my. I can I can do a whole a whole series on that to give you about five or six reasons why she should be covered. Uh, but provided she follows the protocol that Paul lays down, I have no problems with uh, her being able to to pray uh, publicly in, in church. Another question that has been has come in from a listener. How do you know that God answers prayer? Well, we know that God answers prayer because God said he will answer prayer. Call upon me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou doest not. So God clearly uh, promised that he will answer prayer. But if God doesn't answer prayer, uh, there is a contradiction in what he commands and demands of us because he commands us to prayer. Men ought always to prayer and not to faint. And then to have Paul instruct us in Timothy chapter 2 that he would have men lifting up holy hands and praying for government and praying for people. Clearly prayer is a command in scripture. If prayer is a command in scripture and there's no answer to prayer, I suggest to you that there's something fundamentally wrong in a command that there's no answer to it. So the fact that God commands prayer and that God promises to uh, to answer prayer uh, should be sufficient for us uh, uh, in this matter. Look at John three twenty two for just a moment. John three and verse twenty two says. Uh -huh. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there tarried with them and baptized. Uh, it has to be First John. I think it's First John. Okay, First John yeah. three and verse twenty-two. Yeah, that's what I got. Let's see if it's that. And whatsoever ye ask, 
we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Again, it's very, very clear that what we ask of God, uh, he answers. But notice there's a condition that's attached to it. It's a matter of obedience, right? A lot of people pray, they don't get prayers answered, but there are conditions that need to be met in prayer. And that's one of the conditions. I can't be living a life of disobedience, a life of rebellion against God's word, and still at the same time pray to God expect to get an answer. So it has a matter of submitting to God's authority and respecting God's word and living within the confines of God's word. That is one of the conditions. It's not the only condition, by the way. There are other conditions that you have to pray in the name of Jesus uh, to get your, your, your prayer answered. So um, for those who may doubt that prayer is answered, I would recommend a book for you to read, Answered Prayer by George Mueller. Mm. It's a book that gives you uh, an, a complete book about prayers that uh, he uttered and asked God for and in miraculous ways how God provided to meet the needs of his orphanages. Uh, it's a fascinating book called Answered Prayer uh, by George Mueller. I would recommend that you read that book. It would bolster your faith in in prayer and uh, and uh, if, if you have any doubts or uncertainties or hesitancy about whether God answers prayer, I think that book would shut you up immediately to show you that God is a, a prayer-answering God. Uh, but the problem I find uh, with most people is they're having problems with answered prayer because they're not meeting the conditions that have been laid down uh, in this matter. Let me give you another one. Uh, look at um, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. 1 Peter 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them. 1 Peter? Yeah. 3.12? Yep. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and the ear, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Okay. Well, again, um, that gives you an idea that if you're practicing evil, Again, it hinders your access to God and your access uh, to God answering prayer. Another one that uh, along that same line, uh, Nathan, is Psalm 66, verse 18. Psalm 66 and verse 18 reads as follows. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Very clear thing. You're harboring sin in your life, and uh, you know that you're not dealing with it. There's no promise that God will answer that prayer. So if your prayer is not being answered, you need to search your life and search your heart to see if there's anything that is hindering God answering your prayer. God cannot endorse your sinful lifestyle by offering and, and giving you answers to prayer to, to solidify you in your practice and your evil. Uh, he wants you to search your heart in those matters so but he's a loving god so he would give me what i want right and that 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 might sound something that you might find on tv but that's not something you find in the bible uh you don't give your children even parents uh if they're sensible enough uh should have certain conditionalities laid down 
for blessings in their children. You don't give a child everything he wants because he misbehaves. Generally speaking, you're more kind and thoughtful and giving to your child if he, he falls in line and be obedient and respectful and submissive and demonstrates good courtesy and good manners, etc., etc. Uh, you're making a big mistake if your child is misbehaving and disrespectful and rude and, and, and uh, doesn't listen to you, then to pamper him with gifts and almost give him anything he wants. You're spoiling the child. You're not actually teaching the child anything. God is not like that. God is a faithful father, a loving father, but love must be tough sometimes. And that involves withholding answers to prayer because of sin in our lives. The other thing, um, uh, you, you read First Peter, look at 3, 7 as well. First Peter 3, 7. First Peter 3, 7. 3 and verse number 7 says, Likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Again, if you've got uh, relational problems in your marriage that is uh, creating great distance between you and your wife, and you've got long-standing animosity and and and, and uh, resentment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Don't expect your prayers to be answered. God said, "Get that mm-hmm. correct," and then then you come back and pray to me. So there are conditions that God lays down. That and so when we see that our prayers are not being answered, we must not say that God doesn't answer prayer. We must ask ourselves: Are we meeting the conditions under which God, as a Father, can bless us and answer our prayers? Uh, one other thing, look at James 4.3, another, another issue here that the Bible talks about. <clears throat> James 4.3 says, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Has to do with your motives. What's your motive? What do you want from God? What's your motive behind it? You know, Is it something you want that is just going to cater to your evil desires, your lustful desires, uh, evil intent? What's your motive? You don't think God reads your mind and God knows exactly what you want, what you want? Uh, so therefore, He takes into consideration your motive. And you're, if you have a wrong motive and a false motive and a corrupt motive, clearly uh, it can impede uh, God answering your prayer. And one other one quickly, uh, Nathan. First John chapter five, verse fourteen and fifteen. First John five verses fourteen and fifteen. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. Again, um, if you're praying within the will of God, now the question is, how do you know what's within the will of God? Again, there's only one way you can know what's within. You've got to know the Word. Mm. So what you're praying about, is it within the parameters that God has set for you as a believer? We know that God has promised to provide for His people. So when it comes to provision, we know that can happen. Uh, But again, find out if what you're asking of God, if it falls within the parameters of God's blessing in the Bible. There's no other way that you're going to know God's will uh, except you are informed by the Scripture. So when it comes to prayer, the Bible plays a very pivotal role in, in answered prayer because your prayer within the will of God is expressed in Scripture. So that's another condition that you need to look at when you're looking at the problem of prayer. So uh, God answers prayer. There's no question about that. And I think if you speak to believers within your church, uh, 
within other churches as well. Uh, I am sure you're going to meet with believers who can say to you, quite frankly, yes, God answered this prayer, and they can share with you specific ways in which God has answered prayer. So if you have residual doubts on this matter, I would suggest to you that one of the great books that will help you is that book by George Mueller, Answered Prayer, that uh, I don't think you can read that book without going away from it saying this is a prayer answering God something is not wrong with God is wrong with me I've got to deal with something in my life that's hindering my prayers thank you to the individuals who have sent in questions so far tonight pastor is there such a thing as an untimely death I in my view I think there is such a thing as untimely death Uh, I think for example people who die of suicide there's no I, I don't think God planned that and God doesn't make you commit suicide. I do feel that God has a perfect will for every life, and I think God has a permissive will. And I think that's what's going to shock us in eternity, that we will have all, all our mouths shot, that God will show us what his perfect will is for our lives, and then he will show how we've chopped it up. That's why I think that the Bible says we should all be silent. But I do feel that there is such a thing, um, for example, uh, an accidental death. Um that in my mind um, people who die who use alcohol for example every person using alcohol today has cut his life off by 10 years he knows it the doctors will tell him that right so if a man is going to normally live to be 80 he normally ends up dying in 70 if he's taking alcohol he's probably going to die in his 50s or 60s but he still has another 10 years that's a, that's a given and if you're smoking along with alcohol you cut off 12 to 15 years of your life that's a given so there's no need for you to die sooner than you need to die. But again, uh, God knows the day of your death, but God doesn't, uh, God doesn't determine that you must die this way. You have choices to make, and there is a perfect... Let me give you an example of two examples where I think there was a premature death. We got any time? You got 20 seconds. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm going to mention Abner mm-hmm. quickly in the book of Second Samuel uh, chapter 3. Abner had killed Asiel. Jacob's uh, Joab's brother and he went to the city of refuge and rather than stay in the city of refuge he came out and Joab killed him and David lamented and said Abner died a foolish death he should have remained in the city of uh, the city thank of refuge thank you for joining us for today's program we pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's word to strengthen your faith now you've heard it that's truth Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.